0: Yesterday, in fact, yeah, about twelve hours ago, I was in a call with our auditors in the U.S., and they did the same sort of journey uh, with their daughter. And yeah, it's driving across. I mean, y'all drove to Denver, right?
1: Yeah, we did. We went through uh, Vegas to Nevada, uh, Arizona, Utah, and then Denver. Wow! Yeah, uh, it's fun. It's like a beautiful ride. Yeah.
0: In this episode, we're sitting with Maya Patel from the Thursadiyah Foundation. The Thursadiyah Foundation has been funding organizations and initiatives in India and globally supporting the most vulnerable of populations. They've been operating for many years in Gujarat as well as globally supporting organizations on the front lines. Since COVID, They've made a shift in their strategy, really focusing and honing in on participatory grant making and funding organizations that focus on gender, equity, diversity and inclusion. Yesterday, I had a meeting with somebody who's been at USAID for many, many years. And in the conversation, it was great. He was like, you know, I think we have to go back to the 60s. And I'm like, what do you mean by going back to the 60s? i wasn't even born then and he was like because back then uscid actually used to fund community based organizations to do what they wanted to do and we asked them what support do you need and over time development overall has sort of shifted to say we're based in some power region whether it's dc or new york or delhi or mumbai or wherever and really it it is turned into we have the solution and we'll now tell the community what to do
1: <laughs> it's mind-boggling this it really is right like i think the communities know what they need they've always known what they've needed but we with our big heads and our intellectual properties that we have like, oh, that's we know better than that we're going to figure this out and i think that's where we really have to step back i mean not helicopter, not figure out things that work here, say in the U.S., and try to implement those types of things on the ground in India or Africa or some country that doesn't have the infrastructure to even do any of those things and the skills that are needed to be able to implement some of these programs. So, I mean, for us, it was really simple. We really didn't steer away too far from what my father had set out to do. It was like, just let's help one person at a time. It really wasn't about we're going to do this big, effort to solve every problem in the world we were not capable of doing that but we knew that there were gaps and there were actually places that we could lend a hand and figure out ways to put people together and find solutions and i think that's what he was really good at in putting finding people's strengths and seeking them out and saying you're really good at this you could do this and just putting people together and to see how that will evolve And I think that's what he's taught us as the children and the grandchildren is like, don't give up, keep trying. There's things out there that you will love to do and some things you won't. But I can say like, since he came here in the seventies, he's helped so many people find the perfect business or the perfect whatever they needed to get themselves set up for success. And I think that lent itself into the philanthropy was like, it was happening in a business sense, but like, what can we do for our philanthropic work?
0: And with that, I think if you can give us a little bit of background on your parents and were they born, where did they live, when did they come to the U.S.? Like, tell us a little again about their story. I think that would be just fantastic.
1: Sure. I mean, I don't think we're any more special than everybody else. Everybody had a very similar journey, many immigrants coming to America. But my parents were born in India, in Gujarat, in uh, Bairali District. And uh, my dad was born in Singur, And my mom was born in Party and they got married in 1952 and they were there for a very short time and my father was sent to South Africa to start a business. He had an opportunity to leave and so my grandfather said why don't you go take this time to do this and he went but he wasn't able to do the test. It was something that they had to do and he wasn't able to pass that so he had to come back and he finished his education. And so he had actually got his bachelor's degree in Boroda, And so he was the first one in the family that got a degree. And he again made the trek back out and he actually went to Zambia this time. And there was better opportunity in that location. So he was able to do the menial jobs and just work his way up, save money and finally purchase a a store, a clothing store. And my mom and dad were, uh, my mom was sent back and My brothers were born at that time during that period and I was born in Zambia and they really stayed there for about 12 years. My father was flying to Hong Kong and to different parts of the world to gather materials and clothing, textiles and whatever was needed at that time in Zambia. And then he would refurbish those items into clothing for the community. He was one of the first ones to build a sewing center and to start having and employing the people in the local community to start working for him to get them a job and then sell the products and so he was very good at that he was very good at putting things together and he had an app for it and he always also very undercut everything (laughs) that's one of the things my dad is really good at was like how can i make more money how what do i need to do to like you know get that extra cent or whatever it is so but he figured that out. I think he was good at what he did. But by the time that the seventies came around, he was making a really fairly good amount of money, but it was not a place to be. That time people were getting, it was unstable. And so he had to leave. And so he sent my brothers to America. My uncle was here and, you know, said, why don't you guys take care of my boys, get them into a school and I'll come in a few years when I'm ready. But that happened quite fast. In 77, my mom and my dad and myself moved to California. And by that time, he had already purchased a motel. And we first moved into a motel. We lived there for many years, you know, just to make ends meet and to make sure that we were learning the trade and doing the things that we needed to do to understand the business. And it was really his motive was to bring, to send us to a place that would have better education. Education was like the catalyst for him. He felt like, I had that opportunity. I need to give that to my kids. And that was his way of, you know, that's the best opportunity for us at that time. And it was just a very interesting time in our lives. We were transitioning from one African country to America and none of us fit in. We didn't have any clue what this was. You know, it was really hard for us in the beginning, but it was actually probably the best thing that ever happened because it did keep our family together. He was able to have sponsor more of his family to come to America We have very few people that are left in India anymore. Most of everybody that we have are in in America and around us. Like in a 20-mile radius, we have like 50, 60 people. They're all my first cousins and my aunts and uncles. And so it's really, it's beautiful, my parents and my uncles and aunts, what they have accomplished to keep that alive and for our generations to benefit from it. I think for my dad to take the risk of leaving Zambia and coming here, he was very fast in understanding the business aspect of the motels and how to grow that and so he didn't just stick with one small 25 room motel he said okay well he did that for a few years he accumulated a couple more and then after that he's like i better just start building them myself so he learned how to build his own motels and he did that with a partner but that was something that was nobody was doing at that time so he was a trailblazer he was not afraid of risk he was not afraid of learning he would go find people that would help him. And that's what I think is so amazing about him. Even at such a late age, he was able to grasp that. And I think he had an aspiration. He was always aspiring to do more. Dream big, work hard. That's his motto, you know. And so we all kind of understood that. And we never really understood it until later in life, you know, that what, what was really driving him, but he had a mission and he really wanted to get there. And he did. I think he has accomplished it. But if you ask him today, he'd be like, no, 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 I didn't get to what I needed to do. I need to do more. you know. (laughs) And he's 86 years old. And we're like, dad, you need to slow down. Everything's good. You did everything you needed to do. He goes, no, I still need to work. I have so much more to do. And But we keep asking him to just, can you enjoy yourself? Just have a good time. He doesn't know how because all he's done his whole life is work. So philanthropy has been his conduit and his way of expressing that uh, the joy of working. So he finds ways, he connects people. He's a big part of the community. And one of the things that they did do when they did come to America was there was a very small community of Indians in Anaheim. And so they started like this, Radhakrishna Temple. And a few people got together and said, okay, we need to have a temple. We need to have a place that we can have marriages and do Navratri and do all our community activities. So a group of them did that. And today it's still flourishing and it's, it's a great community center. And from that, there were more centers that opened up. And he would finance some of those to help get them started and... All it was is like come together as many people as possible. And he's very, he named one of the centers Sanatan Therma. So like, it's really all encompassing. It's not all about one religion. It's about all religion. Everybody comes together. And I think that's very unique about my dad and mom. They don't think in that terms of like, this is it. This is all we are. They're very open minded, which is kind of hard to find, you know, in the community has flourished because they were open minded and they've experimented and they've kept things going. And after that, it just became, the motels became hotels and the hotels became larger. And so it just kind of like just kept going up. And once my brothers got into the picture, there were more larger properties that were being built and there were other investments that were being made. And now that's like, you know, a small arm of what we do. And there's other investments that the whole company and portfolio is in, which is the genesis and the journey, I'd say, of success for our family. And I think it all, it sprouts from my parents taking that risk of coming and having an opportunity to do something and work hard.
0: Definitely. And we've seen this not only in you and your siblings, but your kids as well. And I think, you know, they always say charity begins at home. And, And we've seen this with your family in that aspect. What sort of, I guess, spurred the creation of Diwali Ben Trust? And if you can tell the listeners a little bit about that particular sort of journey, what year was it? I mean, what made your parents, I guess, decide to do something here in Gujarat?
1: I think there was a big earthquake in Kutch that my father went to with AIF. And at that time was the first time that he was seeing these things that are happening on the ground and how people were coming together. So that really sparked an interest in him. And that was something that soon in 1999 is when we started our giving, like just writing checks and they were doing community things, but I, I can't exactly remember the year of earthquake, but that was a more organized trip. And once he got in, in relationship with some of those people he started hearing about how things were, how people were giving back and what they were doing. And I think when he went back to India, he had more time on his hands because he wasn't doing as much as he was in the past. So he was traveling to India more, staying there longer. And he started seeing things in his backyard. He was like, in Singa, oh, I, we needed this, so we need that, or what do I do to do? And so just even just giving those types of checks there they weren't meaningful enough, and so he wanted to create a center where people could come together and be under one roof that he could help, and it spurred from that. just so a very small, same sort of concept of what he was doing here, but he, he had somebody there that could take care of that for him, and Diwali Ben is my grandmother's name, and so he took that under her, and Uka Chursedia is my grandfather, and renamed the university, which happened in about like 2015. 2011, I'm sorry. And that's when that took off. So there's like these things were like happening side by side, like simultaneously and slowly evolving as he understood that need in that region. He went with his heart. He went like, this is what I think I see here. These children in these remote tribal villages are not getting the education that they need. They need just a little bit of support. Let's get their test scores to go up higher, maybe by 10%, something small. Let's try. And he did that for a few years and he saw that incremental change that was happening. So that he would test little pilots out by himself, a couple of schools and small grant money. And then he'd say, okay, well, you know, if we invest more, what do you need? And again, he would go to the villages and to the actual centers or uh, like Dang district in, near Nafsari. he would go to those organizations and say, what are you doing? How are you doing this? How can I help you? And what can we do together? And so it wasn't like he was just sprouting his ideas out there. He was saying to the leaders on the ground, what do you guys need? How do we do this? And that's what I think we saw that was so wonderful. It was like, it wasn't as if from our perspective, it looked like he was actually was telling them what to do. But until I was able to go with him on these trips and understand how he was like, thinking these things through, it made a big difference. But I feel like those years I spent with him traveling back and forth to India really helped me open my eyes and make me understand that this is, there's ways of doing things and there's ways that are comfortable for you. And how do you make that happen in the work that you do?
0: Maybe if you can talk about like one example of a program that Diwali Ben was running that you saw firsthand and you saw the community and sort of what that meant in terms of like, how often did the community come? What was that program and what sort of did scale look like? Not in terms of sort of, like you said, bragging about the numbers, but more just to give a sense of what Diwali Ben was able to do and continues to do. I think that'll be useful.
1: For one of the programs that dad had initiated was vocational training. So trying to get young women and young men to get jobs. Most of them after ninth grade or 11th grade, they didn't want to continue their education. So he'd say like, these kids are just kind of just here. They need something. They need to make money. They need to contribute. And he would find them just sort of around the villages and he, you know, what are you good at? What do you like to do? And just talking to them they'd I want to be a petition or I want to learn electrical. I want to fix phones or something very simple. But what he would do is like find places where they could actually go and start this and so he would find an abandoned building you know and i think it was in moa there was a center that was just kind of like didn't have much but there was an opportunity to purchase that location he put in some tables he got the electricity going he got it started and he had some of the trainers come to this location had the kids come and get started like they didn't have any machinery they didn't have anything but they knew that these Young people needed something to do. And it's a very simple example. I can't break it down to a place where I can give you a number, but that was the beginning of one of the centers that they started. And now we have 28 to 30 centers around the same locations with 2,000 sewing machines or 5,000 girls that are actually getting their beautician licenses and getting learning those skills or those trades. So little things started and evolved into larger and larger projects, which kind of ca- happened generically and organically, he didn't have to have a lot of systems in place, so like one by one he has really solved so many helped so many young people find their potential and in such an innocent natural way without overthinking it it you know.
0: clearly seems that even in the business world, he was very good at collaborating, really good at unlocking the potential of others because I think that's How anyone is successful in the business world is actually not what they do individually, but how they get the best out of others and realize what they're good at and what they're not good at. And it seems like he just brought that same philosophy here to unlock the potential that existed in these villages and didn't take no for an answer. took, and it's funny just because I think like you were saying, and we've spoken about this with philanthropy, I think use the term risk too much, for example, than, than it really is. I mean, your dad is like, I'm buying somebody a sewing machine. What is a risk? And like, there's nothing that can go wrong here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and these are simple things, right? This isn't he's not changing some, you know, making some big huge dramatic shift in anybody's life but it made a difference that one little thing changed their trajectory changed whatever they had to do and it was just somebody that believed in them you know at the end of the day he was giving them an opportunity he was giving them faith he was saying here i'm here for you don't worry about it if it doesn't work out come back i will still take care of you but it was like that type of relationship that he would have with these young people and he would have it with the trainers and with everybody like just keep doing what you're doing. It's not about the metric. It's not about how much impact have you made? What are you doing right or wrong? But are you doing something? You know, are you actually putting your effort into this? And that's a philosophy that he's had for all of us, his grandchildren, just do your best, try the hardest you can. That's all we have. We don't feel like we have this big weight on our heads, even growing up as children. It was a really great childhood that we had. So I think that's kind of how we want to raise our children and how we would want to raise all of the children of the world. Like, just let's be carefree. Let's be children. Let's try to have some joy in your life. I don't know. It's just something that's heartwarming to me because I don't feel like I was ever pressured by my parents into doing anything that I didn't want to do.
0: You know, it's not about... I have more and I have less. It's more like if I can get this, then shouldn't everyone get this? And not even questioning that. And so I think while these beliefs clearly, and I've seen it with you, I've seen it with your daughters, I mean, they clearly have passed from generation to generation. I think shifting gears a little like when we first met, I remember it was and your husband and your daughter had attended a philanthropy forum we had done at Stanford and J.S. Badek, who, in fact, actually seated for this podcast a year ago. When we were trying to figure this out, I reached out to him. and I was like, come on, I don't know if this is going to work or not, but we need some funding, please. And so he's the one who put us in touch. And so I guess it'd just be good to hear what propelled you all to travel that way, to come to that gathering. And sort of what has been the journey since that time would just be useful. Because I think even as a family, you all have shifted gears at times, taken two steps forward, one step back. And I think, and that's the journey. And I think, yeah, if you can shed a little bit of light of, you know, why did you want to come to a conference and what did that mean to you? That would be great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say that with Diwali Ben and Uphachi Sadia yeah, having such a, a strong hold of our portfolio during those early years when we were funding, we wanted to understand India better. We just didn't have an idea. And the frequent trips were happening with my father and my mother, but we were not traveling as much. And so the information wasn't being shared as much as we'd like. And so we were like hungry for more. We wanted to know what was happening in India. And we, I, we didn't know which conference to go to in India. We would have no idea who we would even contact if we wanted to learn something. So I think it was that Christian that told me that there's this group coming that was coming to Stanford. Why don't you come and you know listen and join in? I said, okay. So got my husband and my daughter. said so she was living in SF at that time. I go, let's just all go up and you know you come and join us for the day. Because I was also trying to, involve our next gen as much as possible. So trying to expose them to different opportunities and just to different things that were going around because we were like sponges. We were just soaking up everything. That was our time to really learn as much as we could because we didn't have any idea what we were doing. And that's when I met you first. And just the speakers and just the way that everybody was talking about India, it felt like outer space. I felt like, oh my God, I had no contact. I just didn't know what was going on and how big some of these issues were. And how wonderful the nonprofits were. You know, I think that was my aha moment of learning about, and you'll have to remind me about who was there because I forget the names, but it was um, somebody from Pune.
0: Pratama. Yeah, Pratama from Shelter Associates.
1: Yes, and like she was wonderful. And so we had these one-off meetings with a few of the NGOs and they were breathtaking. They were wonderful. They were so... Articulate, and they had like this passion, and they wanted to make something happen, and it just felt like these people were real like I finally found a group of people that i could I could relate with you know, I actually understood what they were saying, and they touched just something in me that just made me feel like I think I'm at the right place, and then spending time with you and and Michelle and Mira and just everybody it just felt like. I have some friends here, you know, um, and I just that that really helped me understand, you know, understand more of what you guys were doing. Even then, I didn't 100 percent, you know, know what you were doing. I'm like, what does Dashra do? Do they take fun? Do we need to pay something to Dashra to join this? You know, what do we You know, I had absolutely no idea.
0: <laughs> I still don't know what we do. So
1: it's OK. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great, great. And it took me years after that devil to even get you to like, I, I kept telling my dad, like, Hey, I got these, I met these great people. I want you you know, meet them. Let's figure out what we can do with Diwali van. Let's have them come and let's change this and change that. And it was, you know, that it took a long time back and forth about trying to figure out what the best course of action was. But I'm happy to say my dad has come on board, you know, <laughs> uh, many years later, but he has come on board and he's come on board in a big way. And he's very, very appreciative of what you've done. And I think that's one of the things that I got trust and confidence, having that partnership with you and having conversations with you and you sharing things with me. And it just opened up a lot of doors for us and opened up a lot of information that we would have never been able to gather uh, if we didn't have you and your papers and all of the data that you collect and the resources that you have are so plentiful. And it's been a great partnership for us.
0: I think to your point, we did work with you for about six years, and I still remember one of the calls we had, and I hope you don't mind sharing, but you were, which I appreciated, were very sort of blunt around, well, I heard this was not that great of an organization. I heard y'all are a little hi-fi. I heard you're not in the field. You don't listen to NGOs. And I say that just because I think it'd be great to for listeners to understand real feedback that we do get. And if we have convinced you, what convinced you otherwise?
1: Yeah, I probably have probably shut that conversation out because I thought that was so rude of me. <laughs> <I know. laughs>
0: Not at all. You're doing this for the communities we serve. So trust me, any feedback is good feedback, given, again, we haven't reached our vision of a transformed India where a billion thrive with dignity and equity. Any feedback is important. And we take it literally with that level of, you're right, we got to work
1: harder. I think, you know, like in philanthropy, all of us all. It's like that white tower. Everybody thinks that you're up here and, you know, you're just like, you're untouchable or you have like this, I don't know, you're special. And sometimes like when you work with organizations, they start. Feeling that way. And it's not like that you were that way, but I think that there was a persona. There was this thing like, oh, Dashra. I don't know why and where it came from, but I definitely have heard it. And it was something that I had to like figure out was, are they really authentic? Are they really real? Is this really something that they're, are they a bunch of BS that they're saying? You know, like, is it really something? Are they charging something? Is there some hidden fee? What is it? You know, and that's where we couldn't figure that part out. And, and that's why I had to ask and and just be blunt about that because How else was I going to know at the end of the day if we weren't uh, honest about it? and
0: And I think, I guess, fast forward to kind of 2021. And I remember having a conversation with you and your colleague. It was a Tuesday morning. We had taken a pause at Basra. It was April 2021 because a lot of our colleagues themselves either were contracting COVID, the Delta wave, or had a lot of family members in Delhi who are suffering. And we said, look, let's shut the office down for two weeks and let just everyone, if you have time to volunteer, then help anyone who lives in Delhi. And I had that call with you and a colleague and you both were asking, "Okay, well, given this emergency is occurring, how can the foundation step up and what are the needs? And I think I still recall saying, look, there's urgent needs today and that we need to help out with. But To be honest, a lot of the communities that we're looking to serve or who have suffered the most have been suffering for a long, long time. And so how do we sort of look at relief? Yes. And put all hands on deck. But then let's think about something sort of medium to long term, because if we don't do that, then the relief is unfortunately just going to be that, which is relief for a certain moment in time. And it's not really going to change. And so. I think if you can talk a little bit about where your mind was at, where the family's mind was at, and through, I guess, these conversations, and we've had multiple of them over the year and a half, how you all decided to, for example, go beyond Gujarat and go to other organizations, have sort of a different approach to giving. And if you can maybe talk about what that approach is, that would just be fantastic.
1: Yeah, it was a very stressful time. You know, all of us were under a huge amount of stress, and we really felt like what can we do? You know, and if we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? Really was the question that we were asking ourselves. And we had no idea, right? We were asking all our partners. You were not the only one that we had reached out to. We reached out to all of our partners. It was that conversation that sparked other, you know, long-term, like other views that were coming out of it. And you're the ones that were saying like relief fund, you know, you were already thinking about this, you need relief fund to come out right away, which was the most Current and the most speedy grants that you could possibly give. But there was something more that was happening, like, cause there was like so many people that were collecting oxygenators and all of this relief, you know, all of these things that were just like, everybody was talking about it. And we're like, we just didn't feel like the front line was getting what they needed. And the front line was probably the most affected by all of this. And that's why I think you were the one that was telling, you were giving us the most accurate information that we needed. And it gave us the opportunity to just make decisions quickly. And I think my father was the one that kind of reacted to you when you had said, you know, hey, we need to raise some funds. And Devil's like, Devil, do you remember how, my, I mean?
0: Yeah, no, no. I remember it vividly because I think we... At the time, we were working with somebody in the Delhi government to get oxygen concentrators. It was two weeks before China was about to shut down for May week. And so we had to place an order literally within 24 hours to get the concentrators into India sooner rather than later. After we had that call, I spoke to you again within 24 hours, had a conversation with you and your dad. And your dad, rightfully so, said, why aren't Indians stepping up? What's going on? Like, we're giving. And again, the community across the world was helping at that time. But he was like, what's happening in India? And that was something that wasn't spoken about and sort of gave me an ultimatum. And I remember that. And I remember 12 hours later speaking to him and saying, look, okay, we've raised money now because of that conversation for 250 of these concentrators. And we will get them. The order is being placed. But we need to do more. And like, what does that more mean?
1: (laughs) For him... The fact that you came back and said i got it you know i think was like a moment of okay this guy knows what he's doing or he you know like i think he was gaining that trust and he was willing to to um to go through this process that we were we were getting him through like because we were talking about what's long-term what is long-term resilience what does it mean for this fund and how can we create something that's going to be lasting right it's not just a one time and, and why are we waiting you know that was our biggest question to the board and everybody was what are we waiting for? We need it today. We need to do it now. Why are we being shy about this? And I think that was what changed our thinking was like, we have been giving in our own way, but we have, were are not amping up. We weren't stepping up where we needed to step up. And the approach was in the past, we were asking other grantee cycles and grant mechanisms or NGOs to give us an LOI. Okay, now give us a report. Let's evaluate this. Let's do And then we're thinking, who are you doing this for? Do we, like for us, we don't need this report. It's not, you know, I don't need you to go through all that effort to put it down on paper. And then what am I going to do with it? Really? Nothing. I only need to hear from you. I only need to see and learn. And I was absorbed the information in a different way. And that was what changed our direction. We just decided that that was important to us. We were going through this whole metric evaluation system a year prior, you know, we were doing our own evaluations of like, are we doing the right thing? And it changed our direction. It changed our mindset. And we just didn't want to employ that onto our NGOs and our partners. We just didn't feel like it was fair. That was the first thing. We just decided that, you know, evaluations are not important to us. We're not going to make you go through any hoops. Just talk to us, tell us what's going up wrong and what's happening. That's it. Second decision was long-term funding. We needed to be invested in the organization, make sure that it wasn't a one-off because one-offs don't work. We tried three-year grants, and some of those work, some of them don't because you know by the time they get that start system rolling, it's time to get another report, and oh, you didn't hit your mark. Oh, you didn't. So it's like it's this whole cycle that just doesn't work. So that was the thing that we didn't want to do long-term flexible funding. It's like you decide, you tell us what you need, tell us where you need it most, and give us your case. What is it? What is it the reason that you need that for? And I think those are the big three things that really just changed our course And we decided that we were being timid in the early days. We did do some of it, but we were doing it very slowly and one-offs. And now we decided like, we want to go in all the way. This is something that we're adopting throughout our portfolio and in the way of what's impact like what does that mean to anybody it's such a big it's a word that everybody uses in so many different ways and what does it mean to us in the the day i kind of go back to my dad of like is it helping that one person okay i'm happy you know and that's it i try to break it down so that we don't get stuck in the lingo in the in the all the phrase catchphrases and all of that i just don't want to do that anymore i just don't want to live in that space and a lot of people do and they do really well but we're we're not built that way. We're kind of just a different type of family foundation that kind of just want to be under their radar and just do our work quietly and get on with it. We just, that's what we're trying to do at least. And Gujarat was our safe space because that's where dad was for so many years. He understands the language, he knows the people, he knows the mindset. He has that down set. But he himself said to us that, you know what, you don't have to stay just in Gujarat. This isn't something that I'm not Imposing this on you. All of India needs help. And especially during COVID, that just like that was even more evident. And so that's what we did. We just started opening up to all national, you know, all of India, wherever the need was. And even prior to COVID, we had invested with Co Impact, and that was in Bihar. That was my first experience in Bihar. My parents have actually never been to Bihar either. So it was. But to me, I would think it was just what people had told me. What I thought about Bihar, I thought like they were very wonderful. You know, I thought the people were wonderful, very educated. The government was actually helping in at least the situation that we were in, and with a grant that we were funding, and it felt like there was a lot of traction there. And so, anyway, that my experience in Bihar was meeting an older lady, and you know, we were giving them the last mile grants. And it was a, it was a goat and a couple of plants and for her backyard. And that changed her. She was a widow. She had just lost her husband. And these are the kind of things that helped me understand that it doesn't matter whether you were in Gujarat or Bihar or you were in Delhi or wherever you were in all of India. The needs are the same. The people are the same. And there's no difference.
0: I think another thing that the Thursadia Foundation has done for years has been giving back in America as well. If you can maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that you have contributed to in the U.S., that would just be fantastic.
1: So, you know, we have our three pillars that we've concentrated on over the course of the years. They've been renamed and changed and made a little bit more fancy and all of those kind of fun things. But education has always been one of our biggest pillars, uh, economic empowerment and health and human services. So basically, some of those direct services, you know, we find it's really heartbreaking to see somebody on the street, you know, and in America, if you're on the street, there's something really going on. In America, you shouldn't have to be on the street. There's all of these resources and everything that you could think about around you. And so that really touches our hearts. And us being in the hospitality industry, we always felt like we know how to house people, you know, we can get them a room. There's some way of getting something, put a shelf, you know, yeah. So that just was like a no brainer to me. And so I always have tried to kind of get pulled to that sector and to try to help those people and just and that homelessness has been one of our bigger initiatives that we're trying to get as many people off the streets as possible in our local community we haven't gone national but there's a lot of really wonderful organizations that are doing this wraparound service where they understand that it's just not just the homeless person that's being affected just by being on the street it's maybe mental health illness physical recuperative care that they're not getting So there are a lot of uh, factors at play, trying to dissect that and understand that better. And so we spend quite a bit of time in homelessness, but that's one of the small areas, you know, and then the education part, we've got a lot of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys and Girls Club, a lot of organizations that work with teens and youth and try to get them to, most of them are in underserved communities that don't have the resources. So trying to get them to get to college, try to graduate a two year college or try to get them into a, a training program, so that they have that, they're the first-generation students in these local communities that can get them out of that circumstance. So that's a couple of those. We've done a lot of work with the Foundation and Green America and West. A lot of these micro loans that we give to women so that they can start their own businesses and get on their feet and whatever they need.
0: First of all, it's amazing that you operate in so many geographies. I think many times they're individuals from immigrant communities who say, look, I'll only give to, again, the village that I'm from or that community. And like you said, there's need everywhere. There's no such a thing as any society that doesn't have inequality. Unfortunately, as humans, we haven't, we haven't solved that. We can maybe go to Mars, but we can't solve this yet. (laughs) But I think lots of times when people like yourself decide to devote you know significant time and energy and resources into giving their at times is this mindset of oh well i was successful in building hotels for example so i will automatically be successful in this or i was successful in whatever company i started right and there's this sort of ego, I guess, that does come. And to your point, to be successful in the business world, one does have to be competitive. One does have to think about, you know, being sort of cutthroat. I mean, that's unfortunately, but that is what it is. That is the world that capitalism drives. And and so I guess as a family, though, you all have participated quite a bit in different learning forums, whether it's exponent philanthropy, whether it's the National Center for Family Philanthropy, whether it's, I know, even on your birthday, for example, and we didn't even know it was your birthday as Nasra, but you had Invited us to spend a day with your family uh, on donor education and just what's happening in India and donor education. I know um, it's probably a little too structured of a word, but just to have conversations on what people are interested in and how can we share sort of our, at the time, 18 years of experience. But like, what made you and your family think that these things were important? Why did you spend your entire birthday with us learning about giving? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I had an ulterior motive. I had my kids in the room and I had my nieces and nephews there and I was going to take advantage of that, you know, anytime you get them in the room. Yeah, you want them to listen, you know, and so I had that motive. Um, Yeah, no, it was really, it was great because I think we got a lot of conversations out of that. And I think that was what I wanted was like, break the barriers. Like they think that the adults know what they're doing or these people have this education. So they know what they're, but really at the end of the day, everybody's opinion and voice matters, especially in the family context. You know, I don't encourage that, then it doesn't happen. And so that's one of my, our big things is we planted the seeds for all of our kids early on. You know, we started going on these trips and, you know, having them in these, you know, junior board meetings and just did things to encourage them to learn and to feel like this uncomfortable space is not that uncomfortable, but we wanted to expose them. We wanted to make sure that there's like-minded people. There's people that can, there's a community out there that can support them. So going to these organizations like Exponent or National Family Philanthropy or SoCal or OCCF, like these are local things that we do or DASRA, you know, just there's a space for everybody. It doesn't matter what age they are, whatever. It's hard. But, you know, I think that it's really beautiful to see that each one of them have taken this journey, the things that we've done together and really like embraced it. I think my daughter, one of them, loves agriculture. And we went to Puerto Rico and she was like just all over the farmers and learning about all the things that was happening in the ecosystem. And You know how important food is to us and you know how do we survive without food and it was beautiful to see you know she worked with world central kitchen the clinton foundation so like these opportunities do happen and you have to put yourself out there and once you cross that barrier it's really so wonderful to see that there are some wonderful things happening in this space it takes time it takes effort it takes dedication There's a lot of coming and going, a lot of kids go into school, college, they get married, they have children. They're not interested in coming to a meeting or a board meeting or, you know, they don't want to talk about this. But one of the advice that my dad gave to the kids was, I don't want you guys joining the foundation until you make your money, like make some money, go earn a dollar. Go figure out what that means, and then you can go give a dollar away. And that was something that, you know, that simple little thing that we tried to instill in them is like, this is valuable, hard-earned money that needs to be looked after and given in the best way possible.
0: I guess just in the last few minutes, I mean, where do you see... I mean, we spoke, I guess, quite a bit about where philanthropy perhaps has taken a turn for the worse, whether it's the results frameworks, the 200 page proposals, the distrust that we have in communities or the feeling that we're in an ivory tower. Where do you see sort of some of the changes that need to occur or that have occurred? And I guess what gives you hope on the sector overall, both both in India and globally, in terms of, you know, where things can go in terms of sort of. I guess, decreasing the divide of inequality that we see in front of us.
1: The gender issue is a huge one. I really think that, I mean, this is really horrible to say, but like even in our own organization, there's very few women, right? And it's like, we're always trying to, I'm always telling my brothers, we need more women. There need to be more women in the organization. And, and they've heard that and they're adding more, but it's a slow journey. It's not like overnight. It doesn't just happen just like that. And it's like a mind shift that has to happen on that table. And so I think the thing that I've learned most is that being, having a very heavy woman-centric family, (laughs) we have opinions and we have energy and we have the ability to do just as much as they're doing and be just as successful. And I think that's the confidence that we need to express and to give other women and to like, I think I've heard this a lot of times where like women are like, oh, women to women shouldn't be enemies. Like, you're my, you know, come on. Like, you're my buddy. Right? Let let me help you. And I think that's the shift that's happening around our families. Is like, there's no competition here. We need to all help each other. And, you know, if I help you, you're going to be able to do better in this. And let's piggyback on this. And let's figure out what we can be the best of ourselves. Diversity on board, diversity around the table again is another a lot of our organizations, I'm probably the only one that's the brown person in the room, you know, and that's, that's something that needs to change quite a bit. I also think that the approach of how we're giving and what are we asking of our NGOs, that's what needs to change drastically. And I think we're taking steps towards that and giving them the power to make the decisions, bringing them on board, having them have a seat on the board, I think is going to be immensely helpful and helping them build capacity here. If they don't have that particular skill set, then we need to figure out how, what to do to enhance it, to give them that support. These are the kind of things I think that are changing and shifting for us. I think that there's hope. <laughs> like you said, like we have to always have hope. One of the questions that we always ask ourselves is that all of this time, all of this funding, all this money, all this brain power, why are we having the same problems? Why are we still in the same place? What are we going to move away from this? And it's, so hard to tackle and sometimes it gets you know overpowering it's hard for us to like okay now are we going to try this again how many more ways can we try to rethink this when it could be something really quite simple and maybe we're not looking at it from that perspective so I don't know that's kind of how I feel I just uh I have hope but I'm also I'm hopeful for the next generation I'm hopeful that they are going to be the ones that are going to really take charge in a way that They don't have to have that burden of the adults or like the previous generations putting that burden on them. Maybe they can have a clean slate. Maybe they can rethink things and change things and take it from there.
0: Thank you, Maya. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time, your honesty, your authenticity. Like I told you, there's no need to prep. This is who you are. And we're just showing the world who you are. That's it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, that,
0: that's To know more about the show, our guests and their work, go to dasra.org NCE. To know more about the Rebuild India Fund, go to rebuildindiafund.org. If you like no-cost extension, don't forget to subscribe.